0: So okay. So as you get close, there are smaller things. If you're gonna say if if you know your boyfriend's proposing to you, you get married, I'm trying not to look at any of our couples here. I'm like okay. But if you know your boyfriend's gonna propose, there's certain things you should know. Right? Like there there's certain bigger things of like is he gonna be a good father? Is he gonna be faithful? Uh, is he going to basically like believe the same things that I believe? Those are big things. You're not going to know everything. Like, how often does he clip his fingernails? Like, Probably never. Welcome to men. <laughs> right? like, that's why women civilize men. The faith is a little bit like that. Um, you have to know the bigger things. And if you're not there yet, that's okay. And it's better for you, and I will just say this to you. If there are really big things, you're like, I just can't go there. Then I would encourage you. That's okay. Don't go there yet. I'm not going anywhere. I don't think um, the Catholic faith certainly is not going anywhere. And if you're not there yet, that's okay. If it's a big thing, um, but it does require faith. Faith means it. Do, it means in a certain sense, it means you've got to let like, go of control. It means that you're in a place where you say, Jesus, I don't know everything. I don't understand everything. But I do trust this, and I trust you. Um, if you want to talk about that, by the way, this is why I'm here. My Everyone I hear all the time, I, people say to me, Father Brian, you're so busy I called another priest. Um, in this group, please don't do that. Um, you guys are like, you are the joy of my priesthood. I would just say that. Like I love, RCIA is like my heart and soul. I have time for you. We will make time for you. Please come see me if you need that, okay? And don't be bashful. Okay, so this coming Sunday, what we're going to do is we're going to break in the Word. I think it's going to be me for the first one just because I like to start that first one. It'll be other people after that. So if you come to the Noon Mass, which I hope you'll come, what we'll do is Father Will is saying the Noon Mass this Sunday, and after the homily, where he preaches, he'll say at this time he'll say something like this: "I'd like to invite forward our people in our CIA and to go for and study God's word further, something like that." At that point, your that's your cue. I'm going to come forward to the front of the altar, and that's your cue to stand up and come forward. If it's just me there, it'd be a little awkward, and I'll be like, okay. Um, But as you come forward, and we'll come down here, and we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. We might talk about the readings further and what Father Will preached about. You might say, like, okay, Father Brian, I don't know, like, how to genuflect. Whatever it is, we'll talk about it. So it's one more chance. That starts this Sunday. Questions about that? So if you're already practicing Catholic, you should probably stay upstairs, but you can receive, actually. So if you come down, and if you feel like it's important for you to be here, then come down, and I'll we'll give you communion after we finish. Cool. Same thing when I'm not here. If I'm saying Mass, or whoever the priest is, you can just go up after, and we'll, we'll make sure that happens. Um this is a limited time thing, right? I should say that. It's not like forever. But if you're a practicing Catholic, you have a Sunday obligation. and But this is actually allowed under that. But it shouldn't be a permanent thing. Okay. Are there any other questions? Okay, questions about baptism from last week? Don't be bashful if you have a question. Probably 10 other people do. Of baptism, right. Like, um, I know that like in the in the didache, um, didache. didache, I'm impressed, um, yeah. I was looking it up, like it says, basically that like immersion is like the most preferable way to baptize, right. so I was <clears> just curious, like why it seems so like in the Catholic church, it's more, so, so a couple words I need to define for everybody in case you don't know these things, Didache is an early Christian document, it was, we don't know the exact date, but it was probably written before half of the New Testament was written. Didache is a Greek word that means teaching. Um, and so it's a very ancient document. We're, hopefully tonight we're going to get to Eucharist. We'll see. Steph doubted me. She's like, there's no way you're going to get there. I'm like, I'm getting there. Um, so, the, so the Didache, though, is going to talk about Eucharist. Written before half of the New Testament. And a bunch of that document talks about how you're supposed to behave at Mass. Um, So people sometimes will say, oh, it's just a Catholic thing that they invented later. The Mass was there before the New Testament was complete. Um, But anyway, that's not your question. So immersion means you go fully underwater. So if, if we baptize somebody, what we usually do now is we pour water over their head three times. The other way you can do is you can take someone and you can dunk them fully underwater. That's immersion. So the Didache talks about that. Um, so the basic principle here is just the church's authority. So um, the, there is a divine law. And then there's what we call, you can break this down in different ways, but we could call it, um, like, church law. There's human law. All these things have legitimacy, but there's a hierarchy. So if the government, for instance, comes out with a law, that can have total legitimacy, and if, it has, if a government has real authority, if it's a legitimate government, we're actually bound to obey that as long as it doesn't contradict divine law, right? So if if the government comes out and says, um, I don't know, like like let's just make the obvious example, like like right now for Catholics, right? Like, and we'll talk about this should be for anybody, not just Catholics. When a government says it's okay to kill unborn babies, it's totally fine. Well, that contradicts divine law. Or if the government said it's if the government said it's okay to commit adultery, it's fine. We encourage it. You get a two hundred dollar tax break if you commit adultery, right? Now it's, I mean I don't think that's going to happen, but our, I don't know right now in our culture. But if the government came out tomorrow and said, "Hey, you get if you can prove that you committed adultery, we'll give you a two hundred dollar rebate on your taxes," right? Like that's a, the reason we know that's an illegitimate law. There's another level in here. There's um, what we would call natural law. We'll get to that. But there's a hierarchy. So the reason we know that there are unjust laws, so for instance, if you go back to the Civil Rights Movement and we say, oh, you know what? It's actually unjust to have the separation of schools by race. That's an unjust thing. That's racist. Well, the government was all for it. <clears throat> but it contradicted natural law, which is the law that is written into human beings, and (laughs) it contradicted divine law. And so Christians are called to obey a government until it contradicts one of these. Okay, so we haven't gotten there yet, but here's my point, and here's where it answers the question about immersion versus pouring water over the head. So, like, a divine law and a human law would say you shouldn't risk other people's lives. At least recklessly. Right? You don't need a government to tell you you shouldn't be reckless with other people's lives. That's just... That's written in the human heart. That's plainly obvious. It's in the way that God made the world. It's also part of what God has taught us. Is you shouldn't be reckless with other people's lives. Fair enough, right? But... where um, where the government would come into play with this is, okay, well, how does that apply to this speed limit? There's nothing written on your heart, right? When you're driving, you know, like, you don't like going into like, a prayer mode and you're, like, 45. Right? You don't do that. Now... You could look at a road and say, well, the way this road is constructed, there's no houses, there's no stoplights, the speed limit should be higher or lower. But the government, where the government's legitimate authority does, is it takes a divine law and a natural law, something that belongs up here that says you can't endanger people's lives, and the government specifies that. It specifies, and it says, yeah, we can't be reckless with other people's lives, and we could have a good debate about we know if the speed limit is 65, the death rate in the United States is going to go up by 1.5% if it, versus 55. And you could have that. But at the end of the day, someone, divine law and natural law, don't tell us what the speed limit should be. And if someone has a legitimate authority, they have legitimate authority, as long as they don't contradict this. So baptism is commanded in the New Testament very explicitly. And, but, the, but Christ gave authority to the church. The New Testament doesn't tell us if it should be immersion or pouring water over the head. And so the church operates like the government in this respect, where the church can has legitimate authority, where it can say, hey, you know what, you could do either, which is the current rule in the church. Both are legitimate. Um, as long as it doesn't contradict what Christ has taught. Does that make sense? Other question about baptism. It's a big topic. I want you know I want to keep moving, but it's worth. If you have a question, other people will have it. Don't make eye contact. You guys actually do. I'm proud of you. Let's go. Thank you. I tell Patrick, I was like, bring me a beer when you come over. <laughs> Great. Thank, oh, it's you, Colin. Thanks. Yeah. Hey, really quick. Um, come up here. Colin. So our television audience can see you, too. So Colin Berry is our newest hire. He's our director of ministry here at Lords. Um, so so hi everybody. Hello. Sorry we're late. Good introduction. I was 20 minutes late. That's great. you fine. Um, so Colin is gonna be working hand in hand with me a lot, and he's been really involved at Lords. He, um, he has uh, kids in our school. He and his wife Beth are friends of mine, and they're really involved here. So um, we're excited for him. And so if you there's me, but if you need to talk to somebody also who's like not a priest, um, I'm here for you. Yeah. Come come talk to Colin. Yeah. So okay. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, any other questions about baptism? Okay. Okay, uh, and then, Colin, can you, or, can you grab me an eraser? Sorry. Sorry, I feel like such a jerk. Um, no, you're not. When a pregnant woman says she's the worst, you're like, no, you're not. You're the best. Uh, okay, so. Was that? I mean, you just said that. I mean, you just said you were pregnant. Oh yeah, I am with child. <laughs> yes. Don't tell priests anything. <laughs> um, so, um, so here we go. So there are seven sacraments, uh, and let's just really quick review the sacraments, what they're going to do, and there's this is so powerful. Christianity is not a set of rules, it is not a system. It is not an intellectual thing that you've figured out and you assent to. Christianity is God himself living inside of you. That is Christianity. This is what the sacraments do. The sacraments is where God comes and his divine life comes to live inside your very being. Um, That's what salvation's about. That's what everything in the Christian life is about. It's about making that happen. So the sacraments, right, they take it from, here's what God did in history, and they make it so that you're on the playing field. This isn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago. It's that the Holy Spirit lives inside of my soul. And so baptism we saw last week, right, Romans 6, 3 do you not know, brothers and sisters, that those of us who have been baptized were baptized into the death of Jesus Christ? We were buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as the Father raised Christ to life, we too might walk in newness of life. So all seven sacraments, what they do, and they're all going to be about the cross and resurrection, is they insert us into the life of Christ. New Testament scholars, Catholic and Protestant, one of the words they like to use around this is participation. A lot of Christians are used to thinking of what happens in Christianity is something happened a long time ago. I believe it's true. I go to heaven. The New Testament is much richer than that. There's a truth to that, but there's much more. Is that what happens is through the sacraments, You and I are drawn into the very life of Christ. We're drawn into his death, and we're drawn into his resurrection. If you have your sheet still from last week, sorry I didn't bring more tonight. If you have your sheet from last week, I printed off Colossians 2. Colossians 2 and 3 is all about this. Paul says, when you were baptized, you died on the cross, and you were raised to new life. And basically what he says is now act like it. Stop pretending that you can live like everybody else lives. You died with Jesus on the cross. You share in his risen life where he has conquered sin and death. So how could you possibly live the way you did before? Okay, so the seven sacraments do that. Does anybody remember why there's seven? Don't... Make eye contact. Seven what? Creation. Seven days creation. Okay, seven days of creation. Yep, it's related to that. What, is, what does seven mean in Hebrew? Seven what? Covenant. Covenant. Good. So the word for seven in Hebrew, and we're probably not going to get to Eucharist. Yes, we are. The word for "cut" verse seven in Hebrew is "sheva." B's and V's are interchangeable in Hebrew, basically, and so sometimes you are "sheva," sometimes "sheva," but um, seven is let's say "sheva" in Hebrew. Again, if you're a Bible person, you want to look this up. Great place to see this is Genesis twenty-one, where Abraham makes a covenant with Abimelech. Right? Your next son's name, Abimelech. Um, And what happens in Genesis 21 is Abraham sacrifices seven ewe lambs. I don't even know what a ewe lamb is. But he sacrifices seven of them, and Abimelech says, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you are offering? And Abraham's going to say, it's a sign of the covenant that we are making here today that I dug this well. And so they, they sacrifice these lambs and they name the place Beersheba. Beersheba is the name of that place. Bear looks like beer to us. Bear in Hebrew, do you remember what it means? Well. It means well. Very good. Well of the covenant or really oath, I should correct that. Oath, so the, the um, what is the Hebrew word in to butcher my Hebrew tonight. I can't remember. But anyways, Sheba is oath, but the oath is the key aspect of a covenant. Um, berith, that's it in Hebrew. Covenant is berith. So a covenant is bereith in Hebrew. The key aspect of a covenant is your oath. Sheva is an oath. And so in Hebrew, seven and the word for oath are the same word. So the, the best example of a covenant we have as human beings is a marriage. And what a covenant is is an exchange of persons. So a contract says, I pay you however much money and you paint my house. A covenant says, I am yours and you are mine. So a covenant has, it's like a contract, and has aspects of contract within it, but the difference is is that a covenant is about people. A covenant creates family. So when you get married, the heart of a marriage, what makes a marriage, is the oath you take before God. You stand before the altar of God and you say, I promise to be faithful to you in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. I will love you and honor you all the days of my life. That's an oath. And an oath is just a promise you make to God. Seven is the Hebrew word for oath. When you make a covenant, what the Hebrew language kind of says is you seven yourself. So when Jews look at the creation story, they don't just, they're not just like, oh, seven days of the week, isn't that nice? It lines up with what we think of the week right now. That's not what they see. Seven for them is about covenant. It's that God has given himself to the world, and the world belongs to him. That's what the creation story is about. The New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, is the most clear place, but John 19 is about this other places as well, the New Testament is emphatic that what happened on the cross is that Jesus Christ wed a bride. All seven sacraments come from the cross. There are seven of them. It is an oath. It is a marriage. It's a covenant. That's why there are seven sacraments. God has sevened himself He has created a marriage and a family by his death on the cross. There's all kinds of stuff. By the way, like the the New Testament, St. Paul in Romans and Galatians likes to talk about a marriage will, a a contract, and how that works. And he's going to use this in different places in the New Testament. (laughs) Okay, but here we go. So all of a sudden do that. We're going to hit confirmation very, very quickly. We're jumping to Eucharist because I got to prove stuff wrong. So, confirmation. So, confirmation is a Latin word. It's confirmare in Latin. Does anybody know what it means? Nigel? That's not far off, actually. It's close. Any other takers? It means confirmation. It means to confirm. On <laughs> our podcast, I asked Patrick, I'm like, hey, what did I ask you today? Garbage. <laughs> <laughs> he just looks at me like, seriously, you're going to ask me that on the spot? On the spot with video today? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ryan videotaped us today. It was great. Thanks for doing that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so so confirmation means to strengthen. So it means to strengthen. And here's here's the critical thing you got to understand about confirmation. So... What confirmation is, is it's the Holy Spirit being poured into your soul. And it's what the thing it strengthens is your baptismal graces. By the way, kind of a cool thing, just a random fact, but it relates, of course. Interesting thing is that the only churches that can claim to go back to the time of Christ are the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox churches. Both of those churches teach that there are seven sacraments and always have been. That all seven of them were instituted by Jesus Christ himself, and that it has always been that way for all of church history. And then again, one of the things, if if you want resources on this, I will give them to you. They're not always easy reading things, but one of the reasons that if you're coming from a Christian background but not a Catholic one, one of the reasons that non-Catholic Christians become Catholic is I'm, I'm just going to tell you right now when you read the early church they all say this. They all say it. And there's it doesn't prove it's true but it's a really nice confirmation strengthening of the understanding is that like right now, I'm reading, I'm finishing up a book by St. Ambrose. Um, I just bought a book, are you impressed yet, by St. Gregory of Nyssa. When you read the early and ancient Christians, and then you ask them, you say, hey, what does it mean to be a Christian? What they don't say is admit you're a sinner, confess faith in Jesus Christ, and you'll go to heaven. None of them say that. What they all say is, they do say you have to have faith. They will emphasize that. But they all talk about sacraments. They say you need to be baptized. You need to be confirmed. You need to be going to Mass, which is the Eucharistic sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Um, Tons of Christians become Catholic because they hear people like me who say, make claims like this, and then their pastor will say, well, not really, there's this nuance and that. And if they do their homework and they go read the early Christians, they enter the Catholic Church. Um, it's a bold claim, but I'll make it. It's, just, it's true. Okay. So, um, what is this about? There's an old saying the ancient Christians use, and they say, they say the law was given. What law are they? The law was given. Which which law would the early Christians talk about? I love it when you mumble. You. Moses, sorry, if I'm I know you have masks on, I'm sorry, I'm a jerk. Yeah, they mean the law of Moses, the Jewish law. They say the law was given that grace, whoops, grace might be sought. So God gives us this law, and what we find out is like, it's too hard for me. I can't do it. I can't fulfill this law. Paul says that all over the place. It's, I just can't live up to this law that God has given. So Augustine and John Chrysostom and Origen and others, they'll say the law was given so that grace might be sought. Grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. The law was given so that grace might be sought. So if if there's something that's too hard for you, you know, your parents say, you have to, you have to obey and to live in this kind of way. You say, it's too hard for me, I just can't do it. And you go to your parents and say, Dad, Mom, I need your help. Oh, sorry, I get emotional like every class now. Get, right, get used to it. This is what happens this time of year. Um so, God, so Christ pours out his Holy Spirit so that you and I can fulfill the law. Paul says this in Romans chapter 8. He says it in Galatians chapter 5. He says it in Romans chapter 7. Jesus says it in Matthew 5.17. Um, the Holy Spirit, and here's, here's my point. You could come through this class and you could say, and when we hit morality, you'll say, I hope you'll say, oh my gosh, this law makes perfect sense. Like, I want to love my neighbor more than myself. I want to love God with my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. I want to sacrifice myself for others. I want to walk in righteousness. I just can't seem to do it. And what the New Testament and the early church teaches us is this is what confirmation is about. Is that the holy? It's impossible to live God's law unless His Spirit lives inside of you. Again, this is also great text on this. Is Second Corinthians chapter three? Um, two last things. So, um, so some critical texts for this are. You're a Bible person, Jeremiah 31, 31, and Ezekiel 36, 25. Which Paul makes reference to both of these in 2 Corinthians 3. And what happens is in 2 Corinthians 3, he says this. He says, The old law was written, where was the old law written? it was written on tablets. Right? It was kind of, but not explicitly in the same way, at least. So you have the Ten Commandments. And let me read this to you. So 2 Corinthians 3, let's look at it. So, uh, 2 Corinthians 3. Paul says, You yourselves are this is verse 2. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on your hearts to be known and read by all men. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, and listen to this, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, So if you, if, you're, if you read Scripture slowly and think about it, Paul says there's something written that's not on a tablet of stone. And you say, well, what was written on a tablet of stone? The Ten Commandments were. Written with the spirit of, living God, of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts skipping one paragraph, just for time's sake, verse 7. Now if the dispensation of death carved in letters on stone came with such splendor that the Israelites could not look at Moses' face. Um, If their splendor in the dispensation of condemnation, the dispensation of righteousness must far exceed it in splendor. There's some... If we had more time, we'd spend like an hour in this text. So I'm going I'm to move. But here's what Paul is saying. The, the, this is, I'm, I don't have a great... Here's my heart. Gonna, not my heart, but a heart. What Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 3 is he's quoting these two texts. And so in those two texts, it actually is, goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. But what God says is he says, basically, the problem with the law, and think about your life. When you know something's right, in my life, it doesn't help me that much. Right In my life, I'm like, I probably shouldn't drink beer or ice or eat ice cream. Love IPAs. Right? <laughs> or like more serious things. I know that I shouldn't be jealous of people. I know I shouldn't have resentments. I know the I know that's true. It doesn't help much. And what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 3 is the problem with the Old Law is not that the Old Law was bad. Everything in the Ten Commandments is good. The problem was written on, is it was written on stone instead of something that was inside of you. That's the role of the Holy Spirit, among other things in the New Testament. And this is what confirmation's about. So think of it this way, one more example of this. Um, I don't think too many people in our country think adultery is okay. Even if they say it is, I just think they're just BSing. They know it's wrong. But if you, I'm and picking on guys, because I am one and like I understand men I think better than women. Uh, If a man is like, hey, I'm not going to cheat on my wife. I'm not going to cheat on my wife. I'm not going to cheat on my wife. That guy knows it's wrong to cheat on his wife. He's living here. And he's in a really, really bad place. And his marriage is in a very, very bad place. But if it's written on your heart, you don't even think about it. Because the law is not an external thing that's imposed on you. It's something that flows out of the depths of your soul. The New Testament teaching is that the person who does that is the Holy Spirit. Two last points of confirmation, then we're heading the Eucharist. Does anybody know who, who can tell me who wrote Acts of the Apostles? Luke did, that's right. So, Luke's gospel is the first half, and he tells us that. So, Luke and Acts of the Apostles are two parts to one book. And and the big point that Luke wants to make in his gospel and in Acts of the Apostles is that what Jesus does in the gospel, the church does after he ascends to heaven. By the way, um, every year when I teach this, I just want to tell you that I am super jealous and mad at you, because it took me 20 years of study to understand this, and to come to it on my own, and lots of reading and hard work, and you suck. (laughs) Because I'm getting to you right here. Um, So, in Luke's Gospel, what happens, there's a parallel to the church, to Acts and the Apostles. And so there's very similar things. So in the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, what happens? At the very beginning, there's Zechariah. What is Zechariah's job? Does anybody know in Luke chapter 1? He's a priest. And in Luke chapter 1, this priest, Zechariah, he's chosen to go offer sacrifice uh, in the temple. How do they choose him? How do they they choose priests to go offer sacrifice? How are they chosen? Drawing lots. By what? Drawing lots. Drawing lots is correct. Which is like dice kind of thing. In Acts chapter 1, there's a parallel to that. Does anybody know what it is? In Acts chapter 1, the the 11 apostles who are left, Judas has committed suicide, the eleven apostles cast lots for a successor to Judas, who is one of the twelve apostles and one of the twelve priests of the New Covenant. So they cast lots, and they choose Matthias. Now, in Luke chapter 1, there are 40 days. There's, and this is a little bit inverse, but there's 40 days where Jesus is baptized. He goes in the wilderness for 40 days. In Acts chapter one, Jesus ascends, or he rises from the dead, and 40 days later he ascends. And here's the big one, and when we all through Acts. It's so cool. Waited more time, it'd be so fun to do a Bible study on this. Luke Luke shows, so when you read Acts and Luke, what it is, it's like, you know the marble upstairs if you've been to Mass here? I hope you have. Behind the crucifix, everybody's always blown away that the the marble, the veins in the marble go out, and they mirror each other. This is how Luke and Acts are. Is this, And the way they do that is they take a piece of stone, and there's veins running through the marble, and they cut it in half, And they fold it out like that. That's Luke-Acts. And the point of Luke-Acts is that the church is the presence of Jesus Christ in the world. And what Jesus did in his earthly life, the church now carries out on earth when he has ascended to heaven so in Luke chapter 3 Jesus is baptized and what what falls on him when he's baptized the Holy Spirit Spirit. in Acts chapter 2 what happens Pentecost what happens at Pentecost the Holy Spirit falls on the church. When the Holy Spirit falls on Christ, then he goes out and he proclaims the gospel to the world. In Acts of the Apostles, the Holy Spirit, that's Luke, whatever. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on the church, and the church goes out into the world and proclaims the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the soul of the church. This is what uh, ba- or, um, confirmation is about. Is it's the pouring of the Holy Spirit into our souls? Because if you're honest in your Christian life, sometimes I meet Christians and they'll come to confession sometimes and they're like, they're like, yeah, it's been three years since my last confession. I guess I could have been nicer to some people. I'm like, seriously? I have worse sins than that in the last 40 minutes. <laughs> I'm like, and I've even left the confessional. <laughs> I'm like, Jesus calls us to great things. But you can't do it without his spirit. And so what confirmation's about is that last thing with confirmation is the sfragas. So, in Ephesians chapter 1. Should I do that one? Let's do two really quick. Sorry. Two last things. There's always one more thing. There's two big words in the New Testament that I love with the Holy Spirit. So, "sphragis" is one. The other is a rabbon. So a rabbon is actually Ephesians 1. Um, so Spharagius means this. So St. Paul uses that term, Galatians 6, and it's a handful of different places in the New Testament. So in Galatians 6, St. Paul says this. He says, um, Let no man trouble me, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. So is a Greek word that means a seal or a mark. So how many of you have seen Gladiator? Okay. If you haven't seen it, go watch it tonight. You can't be Catholic if you haven't see Gladiator. Um, but in Gladiator, um, what's his name? Uh, Maximus. Maximus, thank you. Maximus, right? So he's... He has a tattoo on his shoulder. Does anybody know what it means, or what it was? It's cool seeing it. It's a sphragnus, by the way. It's a mark, it's a seal. It's SPQR. Does anybody know what that means? I'm such a jerk, I'm sorry. Someday I'll, in purgatory you'll be like jumping over a level and you'll be like, that's for SPQR jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Patrick will be head of it, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. So it's Latin. So SPQR is the acronym for Rome. It means the Senate and the people of Rome. So Maximus has that tattooed and all members of the Legion do. And here's what it means is that uh, that marks you as a member of the legion of rome but it means that you belong to the emperor and what it means essentially is it marks you as belonging to him and so if anyone messes with a member of the legion they are messing with the emperor of rome the new testament and St. Paul will use this all the time, by the way, is he'll, he'll talk about how he has received the sfragus of Christ. When you're confirmed, the Catholic Church teaches, there is a spiritual mark that's placed on your soul. And what happens, we have these beautiful sermons from the ancient church about this, is that when you die, Jesus loves to talk about sheep. So if we're all, if... Let's say Colin and I are ranchers and we share a field together, and I've got 100 cattle and he's got 200 because he's a better rancher than I am. And we go out and we're like, okay, we need to like, I, I need to to harvest some beef, so I need 25 head of cattle. How do I know which cow is mine and which one's Colin's? The brand. That's what his frog is. Jesus loves to talk about the sheep that belong to him, right? And those that hear his voice, they know him, and they belong to him. The early church says, the day you're confirmed, you receive the mark of God on your soul. And you're marked as someone who belongs to Jesus Christ. And and they say that when when you die... Right, in Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the judgment of the nations. And he talks about all these people who did all these right things, but they don't belong to him. And the church fathers say, if you have the strongest of Christ, you belong to him. The other one's a rabbon last point before Eucharist. Um, rabbon is the Greek word for a down payment. So, so what it means, I think a normal way that some Catholics think about the Christian life is they say, okay, I love God, I'm going to give him my life, I'm going to follow him, and slowly I'll make more payments, and I'll make my way to heaven. The New Testament flips the analogy the opposite way. So in Ephesians, um, oh, and actually, gosh, I was right. Ephesians has both of these phrases right there. Love it when I'm right. Uh, so Ephesians 1 13. Paul says this, he says, In him, you also, who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed in him, were sealed. This frog if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have been sealed because in the New Testament, when you believe in Christ, you are baptized and confirmed. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee? The river guarantee is a rabbon. And here's what a rabbiabba means. Ooh, dang it That Bible means more to me than most of your lives.) <laughs> oh right? yeah, when you're passing me in purgatory pray for me um, Rabban is guarantee, and what it means so if you're if I'm selling my house and you're like hey Father Brian I want to buy your house and I'm like okay well it's a great house and it's really nice you know how do I know that you're serious about your offer if you come to me and you say hey I've got a really big down payment. I'm going to put $100,000 down on this house. That's in Arama. That's what that Greek word is. And here's what's so cool. St. Paul doesn't say that you do that with God. He says God does that with you. And that's the Holy Spirit. So our salvation, the the down payment that God makes to us is pouring the Holy Spirit into our souls. You will meet Catholics. If you become Catholic, do not be one of these. You will meet Catholics who walk around on eggshells, scared that if they screw up, they're going to go to hell. That's not the right kind of Catholicism. You'll meet Catholics on the other side who don't take their faith seriously and they don't give their life to Jesus and they act like it doesn't matter. That's also the wrong kind of Catholicism. The right kind of Catholicism is that God poured his spirit into my soul, he gave his life on the cross for me, and I am super confident about my salvation. And because of that, because of his love for me, I walk carefully. I change my life. I try to overcome my sins. I live by the Spirit of God. (laughs) That's Catholicism. We are not scared of hell all the time. We're confident that God is leading us to the promised land, but that also means I have got to give my life. My own life that was full, that was all about Brian Larkin, that was about selfishness and lust and power, and wealth, and all these things, that life is dead. Right? Because the Spirit of God lives inside of me, and everything's different now. Um, Okay, there's one more thing. (laughs) (laughs) So Pentecost, so in Acts chapter 1 and 2, when Pentecost comes, I always get that mixed up. Is it one or two when Pentecost happens? It's two. So in Acts 2, when Pentecost comes, St. Luke says this. He says, so two one." he says, when the day of Pentecost had come. So here's the thing. Most people don't know this. Some of you might. Pentecost is not originally a Christian feast. It's a Jewish feast. So, Paul in Acts 2, he says, when the Feast of Pentecost had come, there's something that already existed. And he assumes that you know what it is. The seven big Jewish feast days are listed in Leviticus 23. Pentecost is one of them. The Jews refer to the Feast of Pentecost as the Feast of Weeks. The reason they do this, and this is so cool. Oh, gosh, I love theology. So powerful. Um, the reason they do this, so does anybody know what Pentecost means in Greek? What, is, what, is, what do you think, pent, what Penta, right? What does Penta mean? Five. It's five, but it's actually 50. So, this is, so Pentecost is, is the Feast of the 50 days. So Jews call it the Feast of Weeks because a week of weeks... 49, and so the 50th day is the great celebration. So, again, hang with me if you're like, I hope I'm not way over your head. I never know. I'm, I'm probably over some people's heads. You can slow me down and throw something at me. Deuteronomy 15 is about the jubilee, and jubilee is the 50th year. And it's a big deal for Jews. And if we had more time tonight, if we didn't have to get to Eucharist, this is why you spend the rest of your life, you should spend the rest of your life exploring the Catholic faith. It is the most beautiful, amazing thing. It will change your heart and your mind and your soul. It's amazing. So all I'm going to do. Come join me. Um, so 50 is a big number. And in, in the Jubilee year, um, all sins are forgiven. Or I should say it this way. All debts are forgiven. All slaves go free, and all the land is returned to its original owner every 50 years. That's the Jubilee year. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus gets up in the synagogue, and he reads from the synagogue, and it's, it's the line that is the center of all of Luke's gospel. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus declares a Jubilee year. The word for sin in the New Testament is debt. Ophelia Mata in Greek. In the Our Father, we'll get to this when we talk about prayer. When we pray the Our Father, we say, Forgive us our trespasses. It's not what the Greek says. The Greek New Testament says, Forgive us our debts. In the 50th year, all debts are forgiven, all slaves go free. Sin makes us a slave. And Christ came to set us free from slavery. And all land, this is about poverty, and land returns to its original owner, so the cycle of poverty is broken. So if, if your grandfather was an alcoholic and he gambled away your land and lost everything, in the 50th year it goes back to the original family. And so the cycle of poverty is broken in Israel. Okay, but what does that have to do with the, with Confirmation. The other thing this means, so so Pentecost is the Feast of Weeks. In Jewish teaching, Pentecost is also the Feast of the Giving of the Law, because 50 marks the day that God gave them the law at Mount Sinai. So from the day they leave Egypt and you can count this in Exodus 19, to the day they receive the law in Exodus 20, is 50 days. And so when Jews celebrate Pentecost, is why Acts chapter 2 says, when the day of Pentecost had come, when Jews celebrate Pentecost, what they celebrate is that God gave the law. Pentecost, in the day you are confirmed, is still the feast of the giving of the law for Christians. And here's why. So on Mount Sinai, 50 days later, God gives them a law. In fire, by the way, fire descends on Mount Sinai on the Feast of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, fire descends on the church on the Feast of Pentecost. And the way we started all of this with confirmation is you cannot live God's law without the Holy Spirit. Isn't that awesome? this is is Romans chapter 8 the only way you can live God's law is if the Holy Spirit descends into your heart and your soul and so Pentecost is the feast of the keeping of the law the day you are confirmed God will strengthen you to keep his law (laughs) (laughs) I love that so such cool stuff okay question, Seth Okay. Do I see another hand? Questions? Yeah, Nigel. So, doing this a bit late in life, our first step is to enter the church. What's that called? Christian initiation. Okay, so will we... But you already have in a way. Will we on to confirmation? Yep. So confirmation, so if you've been baptized, you were already baptized, you already belong to the church. So the church recognizes baptism in other churches. We have, And the reason is because baptism is so important. We have a very low bar for baptism. So we recognize it in the Anglican church. We recognize it in Baptist churches. We recognize it in Lutheran churches. Basically any church, other than, and not to pick on them, but to say it, other than Mormons and like Jehovah's Witnesses, Your baptism, we recognize 100%. The Holy Spirit already lives inside of you. Um, Confirmation, so when you enter the church, if you are from one of those denominations, when you enter the Catholic church, the, the mark of you entering the church will be confirmation and Eucharist. And those we do not recognize in other churches. So what will happen is when you're confirmed, you already have the Holy Spirit in your soul. Assuredly you do. But it will be strengthened, and you'll receive the Eucharist, which is our next topic. We need a break, don't we? I need a break. Two minutes. Wait. Question. Question. Yeah. Why do some um, Why do some areas have to record order and confirm earlier than others? You Dang why do have to? Repeat that? Oh, I knew someone was gonna ask that. Um. I want to it's that. a really good question. Okay, so restored order. Here's <laughs> here's. So what that means is that like here at Lords, so um, what's happening in Denver, not just at Lords, all over our diocese. If you grew up like in the time I grew up, and you're a Catholic, what happened is you were, you were baptized, you received first communion when you were like seven or eight, and then you got confirmed when you were fourteen. And what happened was your confirmation like like youth group leaders who are trying to be cool in you are a teenager and they were like, hey, it's cool to be Catholic, and you're like, I'm not falling for that. right?" What they told you is that confirmation is your adult decision to be Catholic, which is 100% false, has zero grounding in Catholic teaching, and has never been taught by the Catholic Church ever, um, except by a bunch of youth ministers with good intentions and good hearts. But what happened was, so from from the time of Christ... Up until the year roughly 1900, it's a long time, um, the order of the sacraments is baptism. What? Use a different marker. Different marker so. This is as dark as I have. Oh, okay, great. We'll get blacks. We'll get more black markers. So from, from Christ until 1900, you had baptism, confirmation, and then So in baptism, then you had confirmation, the strengthening of your baptismal graces. Then you received Holy Communion. There's a couple reasons for this, as we're going to talk about, starting tonight. And we'll do two or three classes on Eucharist because it is the height of everything. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. It is the high point of everything. It is everything it means to be a Christian is the Eucharist. All things lead to it. Thank you, Black Markers. Um, all things lead to the Eucharist and all things flow from it. Because it is Jesus himself, we'll get to that soon. Um, What happened was in about, I forget the exact year, but right about 1900, Pope St. Pius X wanted children to receive Jesus in the Eucharist more frequently. So what he did was he lowered the age. So the age of First Communion went down. And what he didn't think about was in doing that, what happened was the age of First Communion came and when it started going, baptism, Eucharist, and then confirmation happened after you received the Eucharist. What's happening now is that bishops like our Bishop Pierre, Bishop Aquila are saying, this is bad theology. It was always meant to be this way. But we're not, we want children to receive the Eucharist, so they're lowering confirmation back down to third grade, where children are at an age where they're able to to understand at some level. Uh, So that's why. Yes. understanding. Yeah. No, it's so the way I the way I feel about the understanding of this, I need to repeat question I'm mad at this. How do I feel about this? I feel very good about it. The the problem is like so I have a heart for evangelization. And the the biggest critique of this is that what happens is families who aren't really strong in their faith they want their kids confirmed still. And so and before when I was at like age fourteen what happens? we could get them into youth group, and confirmation was the carrot, so we could kind of trick them into being religious. We're like, come to class, and it gave us a chance to evangelize those kids, and I was a part of a youth group that was massively successful at that. We kind of lost that, and that's actually a pretty big deal. And so I'm heartbroken about that, but we shouldn't make decisions based on what works. We should make decisions based on what's true. And this, having confirmation before communion, it just is good theology. It is what the church has always taught and still does. All the documents you read about it, it assumes that you receive confirmation before you receive communion. So so we'll talk about confession, or another name is reconciliation. That's related to communion. You can't really understand confession unless you understand communion, so we need to hit Eucharist first. We'll do that. Yes. So the apostles take communion and then get confirmation in Pentecost. So they Great. Do not away. Stop so I don't know contradicting why. me. Deal, <laughs> but, you know, you, you made the one argument and the apostles so, so, the, so Pentecost and here's, here's it's a great question so, it's, so the question was it seems like the apostles received communion first at the last supper but then they're confirmed in Acts chapter 2 so doesn't that contradict that um, here's why it doesn't is because even though so in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost this is a powerful illustration of why the strengthening of the Holy Spirit matters in our life the institution of the sacraments so the, the moment the, the Eucharist is instituted is the Last Supper. The moment confirmation is instituted is not Pentecost. Is it when he paired them up into the Holy Spirit on No, and it's, there's a good guess. But so, so the church teaches all seven sacraments have to be instituted by Christ during his earthly life. So the Catholic teaching on when the sacrament of confirmation was instituted was at actually the baptism of Christ. So when the spirit falls on him, the church believes that's actually the moment confirmation was instituted. And in the Eastern church, and I wasn't going to go into this, but it's a really good question, they still do confirmation the moment you're baptized. They do do both at once. The reason in the West it didn't, it's a long history, but the reason in the West we didn't do that, the Eastern church allowed, you know, ordinary chump priests like me to confirm. In the Eastern church, or in the Western church, only bishops were allowed to confirm. And so what happened was, originally, confirmation and baptism all happened as infants. But then in the Western Church, because only bishops could do confirmation, that got delayed for when the bishop could make it. And so slowly the age kind of crept up. Um, but this is why, so the, the instit- it isn't when the apostles received it, but when the sacrament was instituted. It was not instituted at Pentecost, even though that's a powerful moment of, like, Luke will refer to it as baptism in the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1. Um, but that's that's the basic logic. Yes? Um, is the entire, like, Catholic faith reverting to that order, or is that just a decision within this diocese? It's only in this diocese, but I think slowly it will. Um, it's slowly going to move back to that understanding of the proper order. So, if you read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which we stopped giving those in RCIA because we found that it was just—it's a really thick book and people didn't quite know what to do with it—but it's a great reference, and I would encourage all of you. It's, a, it's a worth getting a Catechism. When the Catechism, which is universal for the whole Church, when it teaches about this, it very clearly teaches that Eucharist is after Confirmation, even just in the order it treats it. It'll treat Baptism first, then Confirmation, then then Eucharist. We're not taking a break, by the way. Ten minutes to talk about the source of the Go. Go. Thank you, Stephanie. Okay. All right. Where to begin? Okay, don't miss the next two weeks. Nah, I'm just telling you no miss them. This is it. If this is the this is everything. This is why I'm a priest, this is why I'm a Catholic, this is everything. Um, okay. So where to start? So let, let's just rehash. We're gonna do this again next class. We got plenty of time. I'll just calm down a little bit. Deep breaths. <laughs> so let's let's rehash the Exodus paradigm. Okay, so really quick. So here's where you answer. In the Old Testament, God's people are in slavery where? (coughs) Egypt. Slavery in the New Testament is a result of sin. Big bad guy who holds God's people in slavery in Egypt is named? New Testament equivalent is? Okay, Um, the Redeemer who comes to redeem the Jews is, I'm not going to (laughs) ask, Jesus is our new Redeemer, and our definitive Redeemer. Um, The way that the Jews get out of Egypt is, there's two answers, Red Sea is one of them, it's the second answer, and what was the first Plagues and the last plague is the Passover. Okay, um, what corresponds to the Red Sea for us as Christians? Yeah. Baptism. Okay, um, we're just going to say here, this is going to be Eucharist, and it's just Jesus in general. So, right, 1 Corinthians 5, Jesus is our Passover, but the night that Jesus celebrates the Last Supper is Passover. This is critical. The Jews understand Passover as the night that they were redeemed. The night of Passover in Exodus 12 is a night they were redeemed from slavery. It is, and we're going to get this tonight, I think, it is no accident that Jesus has the Last Supper on the night of Passover. Um, Okay, so they're in the baptism, they go through the Red Sea, they're in the wilderness for how long? Forty years. Forty years, which is a, for us, it's a Lifetime? That must fall over. Where are the Jews going? Promised land. I skipped a word. What's our promised land? Heaven. How do the Jews survive in the wilderness? Bread from heaven. What's our manna? So here we go. This is so cool. I love this every year. So cool. Um, so <clears throat> Jesus is our Passover. He came to die for us. Um, so a couple of cool things here to just set the scene. This is something if you ever want. If you really ever want to think about what it means to be a Christian, this is this is what it means, right? Egypt is a symbol of sin in all the Bible. To be a Christian. You can't go back to Egypt, and in the manna, which happens in Exodus chapter sixteen, God waits until the food from Egypt has run out to feed them from the bread of heaven. The Catholic Church teaches then this is 1 Corinthians ten and eleven for Saint Paul is that you cannot partake of the table of the Lord, and that he says the table of demons. But if you're living a worldly life, if you're living in Egypt. If you're eating the food of Egypt, you can't eat the bread of heaven. So God waits for that. Okay, so Jesus and his life. So a common thing that people say is they say, okay, and it's true, is that Jesus came to die for us. That is true. Here's the thing. Jesus could have died for us at lots of different times in his life. Right, the two most obvious examples in my mind are in Matthew chapter 1 when the when Herod tries to kill all the children in Bethlehem, an angel comes and they escape. He tells Joseph, take your wife and your child, and go to Egypt. They escape. Now, by the way, Jesus is reliving the Exodus, by the way. He goes to Egypt he comes out of Egypt, and Matthew will quote Hosea, but that's a whole other thing. Um, so what happens, though, uh, that he escapes death. If all it was about was him dying for us, he could have died right there. The other one is Luke chapter 4. We talked about that tonight with the jubilee. Jesus announces the jubilee in Luke chapter 4. He's the new king. A king, by the way, announces the jubilee, which is the forgiveness of debts. It is the um, release of all slaves and it's returning of all land. Kings are the one who do that. The Hebrew word for the king is Messiah. The Greek word of that translates Messiah is Christ, which means anointed one. And in Luke chapter 4, Jesus says, uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to captives, to proclaim the year of favor and of release, which is Jubilee. It's Deuteronomy 15. Okay. What are we talking about? Eucharist. How did, oh yeah. So the time Jesus is going to die is right after that sermon in Luke chapter 4. The crowd in Nazareth, so now Jesus is an adult. You might say, okay, well Matthew 1, he's a baby. Shouldn't he be an adult at least? In Luke 4, Jesus is beginning his public ministry. He's 30 years old. The crowd in Nazareth takes him outside and tries to throw him off a cliff. But he passes through their midst and escapes. And all through Jesus' life, different people are try- they're after him. They're trying, and they're trying to kill him. In fact, scholars, there's different times where Jesus, there's what's called the messianic secret in the New Testament. And what that means is Jesus will heal people. So he'll heal like he'll heal a leper. And he'll say, hey, go to the temple, show yourself to the priest. Do not tell Don't tell them I did this. Don't tell them who I am. And he does that all over the place. Scholars refer to this as the messianic secret. Why does Jesus not want to tell anybody? It's because if, if, if he's the Messiah, the Jewish king who will redeem the Jews, in Palestine in the first century, there's three different Herod's, we know a fair amount about them historically. And they do not like people who threaten their power. And so there's, there's a not a 100% consensus, but a pretty strong consensus that the reason Jesus hides his identity is that Jesus chooses the moment of his death. And no one else. So I think it's in John 10. Let's see if I can find it really quick. Here we go. So John 10, 17. Jesus says this. He says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. And here's the key verse. Verse 18. John 10, 18. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus in John 10 says no one takes my life from me. I lay my life down. So, There's this big climax in the Gospels where Jesus avoids death, avoids death, avoids death. And then at the end of John chapter 12, we talked about this before, but John's Gospel, and it's clear in the other ones, but it's most clear in John's Gospel. John's Gospel has two parts. And all the way of chapters 1 through 12, it's called the Book of Signs. What Jesus does there is he performs, guess how many signs? It's a number you know. Seven. And John points this out. This isn't just me, like, making this up. In John 12, St. John kind of steps outside the narrative, and he says, even though he had performed so many signs, they didn't believe in him. And John 12 is this climactic conclusion to the first half of the gospel. In John 13 through 21, scholars refer to this as the book of glory. And, what, and the big point of that is that what's going to convert the world is not Jesus' signs. Which, by the way, if you're on the fence, what will convince you of Jesus' truth and of his church is not that he performs a miracle for you. It's of the love of the cross. So seven signs, but then in 13.1, Jesus knows that his hour is here. So in John chapter 2, the wedding feast of Cana, Mary says, hey, pref- do this miracle. Change the water to wine. And Jesus says to Mary in the Greek, I love it, the Greek is ti amoikaisoi gune, uh, which means, what is it to me and to you, woman? And he says, my hour is not here. My hour is not yet come. In John 13, the very beginning of John 13, Jesus says, it says that Jesus knew his hour would come. Okay, so, right, we're almost over time. We are over time, but let me do one last thing. And all this is going to pump you up for next week, I hope. Um, So Josephus is a Jewish historian. He's one of our key um, pieces. He's one of our key kind of sources for knowledge of the time of Christ. Um, he lives the generation after Christ. He knows of Jesus. Josephus was a Jewish priest and a general. And there's more I could tell you about him, but for time's sake, we'll just jump to the chase. Josephus says for, the, for Passover in the first century— when all these Jewish pilgrimages, pilgrims come to Jerusalem to worship God at Passover, um, he says that there were one million people in Jerusalem. Now, modern historians are like, that's too big of a number. He's, he's unrealistic there, which is true. But it's a big number. Jerusalem is packed to the gills. When Jesus comes to Jerusalem in Holy Week, he comes for Passover. They stay, that Jesus and the apostles have to stay in Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem. The reason they have to stay in Bethany is because there's no room in Jerusalem. My point here is very simple. the choosing of the Feast of Passover for the death of Christ is no accident. When there's a million pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem, Jesus didn't get into the Holy City and say, oh crap, it's Passover. (laughs) Guys, we got to stay in Bethany. Forgot. There's a million people. Here's the other one. So Jesus, as we read in John 10, Jesus says, no one takes his life from him. He has the power to lay it down and take it up of his own accord. He lays his life down when he chooses. When they enter into the city, two of his apostles they say, Where do you want us to celebrate the Passover? Does anybody remember what Jesus says? I told him to go into the city and find a man carrying the water down. Very good. You're supposed to get the answer wrong. Remember? Yeah, so Jesus sends the two. And here's the thing. This is where we need to listen to Scripture. Um, And I know it's hard. I would never have just heard this on my own. I've studied and blah, 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 blah. The two go in to the city, and Jesus says, yeah, look for a man carrying a jug of water. Say to him where is the room where my master can celebrate the Passover? And Jesus says to the two apostles, he says, he will say to you, follow me, the room is furnished and ready. You will follow him where he shows you, and there you are to prepare the Passover. Now just hang with me, think about this. Jesus could have said, It's on the corner of 3rd and (laughs) Camel. Tim Gray joke. But he could have just told them. Master, where do you want us to prepare the Passover? It's all arranged. It's downtown. It's it's on University (laughs) and 6th. He doesn't do that. What Jesus did is he gives the two apostles a code. You will say to this man this, he will reply this way. And here's the thing, he says, look for a man carrying a jug of water. You probably never thought about this, but in ancient Judaism, men don't carry water. So this, in a a city filled with pilgrims, crowded streets, a man carrying a jar of water sticks out like a sore thumb. Here's your cliffhanger for next week. Why did Jesus do that? Why does he just tell him where it's at? Yeah. So, here, so, this will get you coming up for next week. The reason in John chapter 6, at the end of the chapter, John tells us that Jesus knew. By the way, this is right after his teaching on the Eucharist. John chapter 6 is an entire chapter on the Eucharist, which almost never happens in the New Testament, where there's a chapter given entirely to one subject. That happens in John chapter 6. At the end of John chapter 6, when the crowd leaves because they refuse to believe the bread is the flesh of Jesus Christ, John makes a comment and he says, Jesus knew, let me read it to you, Jesus, in verse 70, John 6, 70, Jesus answered them. He's talking to the apostles. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? Who is the devil? Judas. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was to betray him. And really quick back, just a couple of verses, in verse 65 It says, Jesus, or 64, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were that did not believe and who it was that would betray him. John chapter 6, the longest teaching on the Eucharist in the New Testament, ends with with a prediction of who did not believe in the Eucharist and who would betray Christ. When does Judas betray Christ? At the Last Supper. And he brings with him a a brigade of soldiers to arrest Christ. <sighs> Sorry. Jesus refused to die before he gave the church to the Eucharist. In John 13, he says, actually I think it's Luke 23. In Luke 23, Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to celebrate this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus Christ would not die before he gave the church the Eucharist. He arranged ahead of time a secret meeting place. He hid it from the man he knew would betray him, and he refused to go to his death before it happened. Next week, you'll see why. <laughs> I love doing that. All right. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be. World without end. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you everyone for putting up with me. We'll see you next week.